Hey guys, I'm Mike, and welcome back to No Limits, the Thriller Podcast. Although I do not have Chris with me today, I am amped up to share with you the second half of my interview with Andrews and Wilson from last week. We not only talked about Dark Fall, the third book in the Shepherd series, but I absolutely had to ask them a few questions about Sons of Valor 2, Violence of Action. This is the second book in the Chunk Redman Sons of Valor series, and it is off the chain. I'm going to say, besides Oath of Loyalty, which has a very special place in my heart as one of my favorite Mitch Rapp books, Sons of Valor 2 comes in second as the book of the year. This was an incredible read. I think it's Jeff and Brian at their peak. This is their consent to kill. It is a masterpiece. It takes the time to develop a story. It brings back the characters. It's basically the sequel and part two to the first book. I mean, that's aptly named. And boy, am I glad that that's what it is. It is just hitting on all cylinders. Guys, if you have not checked out Andrews and Wilson, now is the time. Whether you start with the Shepherd series, go back to their Tier 1 Dempsey series, or jump into Sons of Valor, which we're talking about today. So it is a shorter interview that you'll get at the end, and it is indeed spoiler-filled. So just a warning, like most of our episodes, there are spoilers for Sons of Valor 1 and 2. Please, please hit pause right now, and then come back and listen to this episode after reading Sons of Valor 1 and 2. If there is a book or a series I don't want to spoil for you, it's this one. Consider yourself warned. Before I play for you, however, their interview, and I hope Chris will forgive me here, for the first time ever, I want to do a solo scorecard. I have not made up my mind yet, and I have not scored this book yet, so I thought I'd jump on here, hit record, and kind of think out loud as I go through my scorecard for this book. We don't use the Thriller scorecard for every book, but this one might just come out a perfect 50 out of 50. And in case that's where I settle and where I land, I wanted you to hear the reasoning behind it. Sons of Valor 2 on action and plot is getting a 10 and a 10. The action is absolutely next level. The final two sequences of this book that involves a convention center and a shootout and a terrorist plot is so unbelievably scary. And the way you are just in the action, whether you're with Saw up in the overhang, as if you're dangling from the rafters, trying to play a sniper on sniper shootout game. And and you've basically co-opted a maintenance worker. <laughs> you know, you're in Dubai to be your, your wingman and to be your, your watcher. And the way he can instruct him and give him what he needs in that moment and talk him through it while also purely focusing and all the adrenaline and focus that, that you need to take that shot. 
and he's guessing most of the time. He's kind of looking through the scoreboard or whatever it is, the, the thing hanging from the rafters and trying to figure out where the guy would be. He's looking through walls and realizes there's no room to lay down because this maintenance worker said there's a ladder in the middle of the platform. So he's in a standing position. He's not prone. All of that is happening while you're on the ground with the other operators. And, of course, you have Watts. Whitney Watts heals. She's in the ears of everybody, that analyst. She's playing mother. And I just, oh, it's near perfection. That's not even to mention, once they realize the attack is actually closer to home than they would have thought, not only the convention center in Dubai did they hit, but they were going to hit local convention centers back home and different military, industrial, DOD, contractor, defense conventions. But that massive heel turn when they realize it saws family under attack. This whole thing was a feint to throw them off their heels when what the terrorists really wanted was to hit you where it hurts. So they're racing into the suburbs uh, and just... It's so personal and so emotional and a family that we haven't really even met, I just care so deeply for. And I'm I my heart is breaking for them, hiding in the center of the house in this like utility closet. Who's coming? Will daddy burst through that front door and be there for them? But Chunk realizes if this were any other operation that didn't involve family, no. The sniper is not the one kicking in the door. He's got to play God. He's got to be up there on Overwatch. He's got to eliminate the threat. We know another sniper's out there. So Chunk has to go in. And the way Saw has to deal with not going. Not rushing home. The instinct is to rush home. And he can't do it. He knows it's better to let Chunk do it. It's got to be one of the hardest decisions. And... You feel that weight as he's making it. That action isn't, that sequence is enough to give it a 10 out of 10. Not to mention how the plot got here. It is amazing to watch Whitney Watts trying to gather intel, trying to put the, the pieces together, or in her opinion, untangle the knot. I love this metaphor of the knot that she has tattooed on her arm and she's tracing it. She's the one to untangle these plots and put the pieces together, even when no one else can see what's really going on. It's brilliant. Just what a tag team, what a duo. Chunk and Watts, heels, although <laughs> can we call her heels anymore? Has she grown out of a nickname and earned the final respect of the group? Although monikers like that, you know, they die, they don't die. So, uh, Heels has got to stick around. Heels is a, it's just a great name. What a scene from book one. I'm going to be honest here, guys. I had largely, largely put Sons of Valor 1, not on the back burner because I loved it, but it wasn't on the forefront of my memory. Like, oh, yeah, that was great, but I wasn't thinking about it. Or Heels going on the run with Chunk. And I love that run where he's trying to get her to care a little bit about fitness and, and health. It was so great when I was reading it. But, but I forgot it. Yet this book does its job in drawing you right back in. Right back in. And then, speaking of plot, 
perhaps my favorite part of the plot that's not action-based is reliving and going back to the wedding in Afghanistan and how Kasim had to cross the border to go see his sister and he was roped in to his brother's terrorist plot and the drone strike. And when he loses everything, you're brought right back to that moment. And that is having a major influence, an extraordinarily profound influence on his decision-making moving forward. Then you have on top of that his persona as an engineer, a westernized engineer living in London, working for this major aerospace firm. And it's just incredible the pressures you put on this character and how that drives the plot. It's not an artificial manufactured plot. It's a plot born of history, of family, and of the consequences of prior actions and actions family members took. And actions the Americans took, you know, in some way you can argue we created him. I wouldn't say that's my final conclusion, but you could see from his perspective and how he's being played by Hamza, the leader of Al-Qadar, this terrorist cell. He's being manipulated. He's being groomed. It's extremism and how it's manufactured. People aren't born inherently evil. They're exposed to evil. They're groomed by evil. And Hamza is doing that in the most cunning, the most cunning way possible. And it's disgusting. And to watch who we could have been sympathetic to, a villain, who we could attempt to try to understand what he's lost and how he's gotten involved, his sister, his brother. We can understand, even if you didn't agree with what Brian and Jeff did was create a terrorist who the door was open for a reckoning. You know, the door was open to taking that step to redemption and realizing what you've done. And how many times did you believe Deba was on the precipice of convincing him to defect and the relationship with Deba is unbelievable. <sighs> so much is happening. Let's get back to the scorecard, though. All of those items advancing the plot make it a 10 out of 10. Nothing is manufactured. Nothing's artificial. It's all organic based on the characters' lives, the setting that has been drawn for us, and the motivations they would have based on their background. So 10 out of 10 on action. 10 out of 10 on plot and the buy-in. The way you hear me speaking, there is not a dull moment in this book. There's not a moment to check out because even if the action isn't happening, that's not what we mean by buy-in. Buy-in is how much do you want to stay with the characters, live in their universe, and be a fly on the wall. Well, let me tell you, it's a perfect 5 out of 5 here. Even if it's just Watts, trying to untangle a plot, and when, when she's actually deployed with the guys and living in their barracks and they're playing video games, or I forget what movie they're even watching, but, oh, they just keep on quoting, you know, Anchorman or something, and she's just like, she's had enough of it. She's just in her room 24-7, hyper-focused on the threat that she believes is out there. You're, you're there. You want to be there. You want 
to watch her do her thing. You want to see the guys joking around, you know, fuck all attitude. You want to be in every moment of this, the deadly, the serious, and the jovial. So five out of five on on buy-in. You heard me talk about the bad guys and the good guys. This cast of characters is fantastic. You know, I just mentioned Heels and Chunk. Two characters you loved in the first book, you love even more now. And you want to see them work together. They have to go undercover. And, oh, the book just gets you thinking, I don't want them to have an attraction for one another. You know, he was always not quite a father figure, but maybe this uncle figure, this mentor, this larger-than-life role model teaching her things. And he was always that older kind of kind of persona in her life. And when she's looking stunning at this op where she has to pretty much be undercover, she nails the role, by the way, just nails it. But the way he's noticing her and, and her in that light changes how he thinks about her. I'm like, no, 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 no. I, do, I don't want to see a relationship develop there. But they don't go there. They, they don't go there. Will they go there? I don't know. But again, I'm bought into it. I don't want him to go there. But if Brian and Jeff choose to go there, I'm going to have to deal with it. You know, so the fact that there's hints and seeds, I think they understand that. I think they understand readers will be conflicted of how this relationship is seemingly coming off when they have to act like they're a couple. We want it to just be acting, but at moments it seems more than acting. And and I bet that's what's going on, you know? So they're going to have to deal with that, and I hope it doesn't happen. But again, it's it's life. The attraction might be there. You might feel it. The question is, are they going to choose to run with it? Are they going to address it like adults and say, sure, it seemed something happened, but we it doesn't we can make of it what we want to make of it. The fact that I didn't want those two to ever think of each other that way, but it's come up that maybe there's a door to open that path. Again, it, it just grips you. It brings you in, even if it's something you ultimately don't want and you're saying, no, 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 don't go that route. It's still pulling you in and they're doing it while on mission. So. What better time, you know, at the high society in Dubai, the big money, the big heavy rollers, and the stakes are life and death. So all of that's happening right in the moment. The bad guys, I mentioned it. And here I want to shout out something that the boys mentioned in our interview coming up, the arc of a villain. I can't really think of too many other two-book arcs where the villain has taken me on such a roller coaster. Kasim is almost the perfectly crafted villain. He starts sympathetic. He makes choices you wish he didn't make. But he has an opportunity, and chances are in front of him to walk away from that life. Yet he's just pulled deeper and deeper into it. And it further reinforces how you can see radicalization happening. How you can understand why he's going down this path that Hamza is dangling in front of him the life of retribution reminding him of his family and that day at the wedding and even though he hates them for it because all evil all terrorism is motivated by that hate he's using that hate to make him feel like he's gaining something that by having that hate remembering that hate cultivating that hate you're turning it towards an ultimate purpose, which is the right path. And speaking of hate, I hate him for doing that. I hate Hamza for doing that because how badly 
do you want to see Deba fulfilled? They had to get married last book. They didn't want to. It was all part of the cover to move into the West and get this job as an engineer. But you love her. You know, she's so innocent and she's so powerful in a powerless situation that you're just hoping Deba can win big. She's subservient to him, but you get the sense that she doesn't need to be. She chooses to be because she's hoping it's a it's a obedience born of a loving relationship, but it's not. And the reason it's not because this Hamza walks into their life, quite literally imposes himself in their home. And all those scenes, you're just so torn on the inside of, can he run away? Can he walk away? But the opposite happens. He becomes Hamza. I am become evil, he tells himself, and it leads him down a path of darkness. And we're on that journey with him the whole time. Bad guys, five out of five. Good guys, five out of five. And now the setting. You've heard me gush over whether we're reliving the drone attacks, the Afghanistan-Pakistan border crossing. Not to mention that picture. One picture that Watts is analyzing with, you know, she calls a couple of people, makes these connections. She notices someone's leg in the corner, that he's not alone in the car crossing the border. There was somebody there with him. Was this a wedding guest, a family member, somebody innocent? Do they actually have bad intentions? And you're questioning that the whole time. Chunk and Watts almost come to a point where they say, they interview him, they had him, and they let him go. Oh my God, when they capture him and they're giving him medical attention after they sneak him out, it's just like, he played it so well. He became Hamza. He literally tricked them. There was no going back. You tricked Watts. Even though ultimately she didn't deep down buy it. They were duped. And he and he walks. And it's just like... I was taken back to that scene in the car that I read what year over a year or two years ago. And didn't necessarily even remember. But I was there again. I was at the wedding with the drone strike. And then I'm at the convention center in Dubai. I'm undercover with Watts and Chunk when they're on their mission. And then, not to mention, the suburban setting of Saw's house and Saw's family. He's trying to find like different eaves of the roof, calculating angles that he know he can't get hit from. And that's happening in a neighborhood a lot of us, a lot of us in this demographic are familiar with this Single-family, suburban home, outside of a major city. And now we've got a sniper shootout. And now we've got a home invasion. A, an attempted kidnapping. And two operators standing against it. Without really a lot of Overwatch at first from, from above. It's just like, oh my god, it's so real. It's so real. Setting, 5 out of 5. Absolutely. Even just the streets of London... When he's going to the different neighborhoods in this underground, I didn't even mention, this underground spice shop. And how he gets into the spice shop. And originally, with the hackers, there's some funny uh, dialogue. He's treating them nicely and kindly, like the real Kasim. But he realizes that's not how this organization works. He's being disrespected. Any sort of kindness is weakness. And when he flips and pretty much starts smacking him up and destroying this room, and I'm like, 
Oh man, this is real. Kasim is going down. And then Nando's, I didn't even mention talking setting. What Kim, the British intelligence operative, is doing to cultivate Deba. That way they have a back door in case Kasim is bad. They wanted a, you know, a, a backup plan. Oh my god, the conversations at Nando's, and she just wants to take out chicken. She just wants to bring a meal home. Deba just wants to put food on the table. Not only for her husband, but just a treat for herself. It's her safe space. And even the Brits, the good guys, are invading her safe space. Like, the innocence that we want for Deba is not only being taken by Kasim and exploited. It's being exploited by the good guys because it needs to be. Yet she's caught in the middle. A relationship that was arranged and forced and transported because of a terror network, and they were going to play a deep role in this drone attack and him working undercover at the aerospace engineering firm. Yet I love them. I care about them. I want Kasim and Deba to find that hope, to live in peace and get away from it all. Why do I want that so badly? And then this book tears it out from under you. It just goes in the complete opposite of what you were hoping it could be. And now book three... I need it. I need the consequences of that. I need the consequences of him, a somewhat redeemable figure, going into territory that may border on irredeemable. It's perfect. It's absolutely beautiful. Now, this is a perfect scorecard so far. Let's talk about the cover. What... A great design. I've been a big fan of all the Andrews and Wilson's covers. I think the color scheme of the bright orange and the dark tonal orange has been really good. The text is a perfect font with the gray and blue tones where the cover is where the title is written. It's just a really good solid layout. You got the team, who who I can only imagine is Chunk, Riker, and Saw. You've got the helicopters. And, oh, mm, I was about to say this can't be a 5 out of 5 cover for a couple of reasons. Because I kind of like that suburban feel of this book eventually is about when terrorism hits home. And without that, something about the sniper scene. Because Saw, I mean, man, Saw is a huge part of this book. But then I just saw the tower, the Burj Khalifa. So we are absolutely smack in the middle of Dubai. And you know what? I am here for it. I I like it. That that rendering of the Burj Khalifa in the background with the birds coming in just did it for me. I'm going five out of five on the cover of Sons of Valor, which can only mean one thing. It's a perfect 50. It's a 50 out of 50. Chris, forgive me if you disagree. You haven't read the series. I'm hoping you do. If there's one author or a set of authors in this case, you got to pick up next. It's Andrews and Wilson. So for my free space to round out the perfect scorecard, five out of five, it's going to you two. Brian Andrews, Jeff Wilson, thank you for doing what you do. The amount of hours you must put into getting these books published is so worth it because you're creating something for fans that gives us a little bit of an escape, but ultimately teaches us about real life and gives us characters 
that we can all find a little bit of ourselves in. Even those like me, furthest from the thing of military and operations, I could still find bits and pieces of these characters in my life and the people around me. So thank you for doing what you do. A 50 out of 50. And folks, let me turn it over to the men of the hour, Brian Andrews, Jeff Wilson. Enjoy our brief but really, really incredible chat about Sons of Valor 2, Violence of Action. Sons of Valor 2, I wasn't expecting to pick it up. I had an Audible credit, and I was like, man, I love Chunk, and I loved Heels. Let me go back to that universe. And holy cow, (laughs) this one was incredible. (laughs) I'm like, and... It's been a while. I kind of wouldn't say I forgot the first one, but some of the the intricacies and the details I I didn't recall. And they it almost came flooding back to me. One thing I, I keep coming back to is the car ride going to the wedding with the drone strike. And I guess I'm gonna put spoiler warning all over this section. I'll, I'm gonna cut it in. I'll also put one in the very beginning that with Dark Fall. If you totally want to go into it unaware, don't listen till you're done. Uh, yeah. So I'll put I'll put a little uh intro in the front for this but sons of valor 2 major spoilers the fact that we're going back to that car ride crossing the border <laughs> and the analysts are looking at little details of there's a somebody's leg in the in the picture oh, like that's got to be real stuff right that's how our analysts are tracking people and looking at the small things in in what they've got yeah so um sons of valor 2 <laughs> is just more of Sons of Valor 1. It just takes Sons of Valor 1 and all the fun little details. And then, you know, to use the old uh, Spinal Tap thing, you know, we just turn it up to 11. You know, you this one goes to 11. It does. And, uh, you know, it's our highest rated book uh, on Audible. It has several thousand reviews. It's a 4.9. You know, we're just blown away with the fan uh, reactions to this book. And in fact, Ray Porter even messaged us and said, guys, He's read so many of our books. He said, guys, this one, it might be one of my favorite books I've ever performed. And uh, so that was a huge compliment coming from him. You know, I am not going to disagree. I, I was blown away. It's one of my favorite thrillers of all time. And I think the best book that I've read by you guys, it's, that's why I wanted to bring it up. I know with Amanda, I didn't mention we wanted to talk Sons of Valor. It was going to be purely the Shepherd series, but I had to bring it up while I had you and our listeners who have read it. I really want to hear a little bit more about your success with this one. Well, yeah. What questions do you have about the book? So the suburban sniper on sniper shootout. <laughs> I a recently a Jack Carr book had a sniper on sniper. We read a Brad, we were doing a Brad Thor book, which had a sniper on sniper kind of battle. And none of them have, I think haunted me so much. It's like, oh, I'm not going to be hiking in the woods and, some, you know, Chechen sniper is not going to be waiting for me. Or, you know, like I'm not, uh, chances are low that I'm going to be in a big city during a terrorist attack. But this one was like a suburban neighborhood, you know, where I and probably a lot of readers have grown up or have familiarity with. It just seems so real. Hiding on rooftops, behind chimneys and eaves, and being able to shoot through walls with thermal imaging. And (laughs) aren't you going to scare people with that kind of stuff? (laughs) It's a scary world, man. It's a... (laughs) But Jeff, remember our developmental editor on Sons of Hour 3, because we just we just finished that book. He's like, now, you know, can we do something like what you did at the end of the Sons of Hour 2? 
<laughs> yeah, and that was actually tough, right, Brian? Because yeah. that's you can't do that in every book. Like the, right. uh, you know, again, not, we don't want to give too much away, but the stakes in that in that climax yeah. are highly personal, and that was what uh, resonated uh, with Andy. We have a, a developmental editor at Blackstone we just love. His name's Andy, and he's fantastic and insightful. But he loved book two and he was like, you know, can you make it real personal? And it's like, look, at some point that's really fake. Like maybe that happens once in your career. It doesn't happen every operation that you have personal stakes. At some point, it's just it's your job to protect the nation. And, um, but, yeah, he it resonated with him as well. And then, of course, the flip side of that is you got another book. And if uh, if the book two is that well received, you got you got to come up with something that, that they're not like oh well that's not as good as, as the last book so uh, and I think we've done that we uh, we just finished that book up it's coming out next June book nice. three uh, and it's it got some very different stuff in it but yeah that was really 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 fun and I think what will be fun in book three for the people that enjoyed that is the ripple effect you know we we yeah. never really enjoy. Uh, whether it's film, television, or books, that horrible thing happens to a character. And then next, Tuesday, next Tuesday, you watch it, and he's just right. like business as usual. Yeah. We like to kind of have our characters and relationships between our characters impacted by these things. And so that was one fun thing in writing book three was to unpack what that toll was on the team, on the relationships in the unit, but also on individuals like Saw in that, in that sequence. You don't walk away from something like that unscathed emotionally and psychologically. So what would that look like and how would that affect his role in the team, et cetera? And so we get to get into some of those issues in book in book three. Even the nuggets you dropped about that, the way Chunk, kind of this ideal leader, understands that, you know, I might have to let guys go, might have to support them and what's best for them, especially after something like this. It's again, you're creating role models. So that we're not looking up to the Elon Musk and the whoever the world, you know, as much we we can look up to your characters and, and learn so much. Now, the opposite is true, though. The book is also haunting in that you took who I thought was after book one. Perhaps the mo one of the most sympathetic villains in a in a thriller, someone who his relationship with his wife, which was not even a wife of love, but of circumstance or necessity. And he actually falls for her and they seem to be falling for each other. And they're like fish out of water living, you know, in, in a Western world, even though, you know, they had a very traditional upbringing. And now I absolutely hate him. And I'm like, <laughs> like, like you've made me yell at a character and just yell, no, no, don't do that. Don't go down that path. And yet so clearly he unravels and fuck, he goes down that path. Excuse me. <laughs> yeah. I love that reaction. I love that you're feeling that way, Mike, because that takes, that's hard as a writer. That, I mean, th that means we're doing our craft or doing our job. If we can really jerk your emotions like that and make you feel like, you know, man, why is he doing that? You know, don't do that. If we can get you to yell that out, we did our job. Yeah. And we've, and, and in this character, particularly because you've keyed into something that was a, highly intentional and very craft centric in, in that series of books was, you know, it's a risk to develop a sympathetic antagonist. Um, and we talked for hours about that risk 
that we were willing to take, but how to mitigate it and how we needed it to unfold. And you can't just have a sympathetic guy and then flip a switch and he's a, a dipshit. And then so that you can hate him and we can kill him. Like it's got to be organic. And that was, as Brian alluded to, that was a lot of work and writing and conversation and rewriting and pulling little subtext through so that we can take him on a villain's journey, right? Yes. Yes. Get him to a satisfying place. If by the end of book two, you still feel like, man, that poor guy, well, that's going to be a problem. <laughs> that's going to be a problem <laughs> in book three. We don't want you to start to hate Chunk, right? Because of right. what he's doing with this bad guy. So it was a, it was really fun. I think we were able to to push ourselves to a, a new level of, of character development, but especially antagonist development, which is something we take great pride in making those characters, fleshing them out, making them real and having their own, their own arcs and stories. But we had to do it at a whole different level with Kasim Nadar. There's no question about it. And, and yeah, you know, I don't even know if we've done it. We did it in Sons of Out 2, but I don't think we've ever done it before, which is there's a whole chapter devoted to, Kasim's just getting mentored by Hansa, mm, you know, yeah. and that was pretty fun to, we, I went back and listened to Sons of Valor too. First of all, I think it's our funniest book because I found myself laughing at jokes we had written that I didn't remember. Um, but, you know, that, that chapter where Hamza is sort of mentoring Kasim, that was pretty powerful, you know, because Kasim's not sure. Um, and, and, and he, he, he reaffirm, he constantly gets reaffirmed, right? He's always reaffirming. Um, and then by the time you get to the end, like you said, okay, he's, he's comfortable with his decision. Yeah. But I think that's how it is in real life. I don't think anybody, there are, there are a handful of sociopaths that are, come out of the womb and they're just villains from, from birth. But I think most people are not that way, right. you know? It's a process to become comfortable with violence and conducting violence and and taking advantage and hurting people. You know, that's a process, and I think yeah. that's what we're seeing. Yeah, you can't just have the the, the bald guy stroking the cat, right? Like that's right. That's, that's right. fun in a James Bond, old James Bond movie, but it's it's a little tropey and and not as enjoyable. And I think we've done it before. We've done it. I think if you look at the uh, you know what we did um, in the tier one books and the sort of the, what we, it's not formally called as we refer to it as the Persian trilogy with Iranian. Oh, you're that, right. Uh, yeah. A little bit with, um, we, we for sure developed it, but it was in retrospect, right? Like yeah. you met them when they were already who they were, but we tried to, through the relationship between him and his wife, flesh out and the loss of his son and the attack. Right. right. We tried to flesh out some of his motivations and retros in retrospect, mm -hmm. what made him the the good guy in his story, right? Which is what yeah. we try to do yeah. with an antagonist. That was the playground. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. But here we did it in a very prospective way, starting his journey from the beginning of the book instead yeah. of looking back through that lens. And it yeah. was really hard and really fun. And um, I think we grew as writers doing it. I think so too. Yeah. I, I think what made it genuine was well, that's the nature of radicalization as you're describing. Yes, there and you go. That's how extremists are, are. They're not. They're not born extremists. They're they're groomed, if you will, yeah, to, right. to become that. And Hamza is doing that par excellence. And at the same time, it could be rushed. And I think that's when maybe it either 
feels cheapened or feels too fast or it's just a 180 that the reader doesn't buy into but yeah the fact that you carried him as the main antagonist over two books and you're in the first one you're, you're kind of sympathetic and then the second one the rugs pulled out from under your feet you're not doing that in 100 pages you're doing that in 600 pages right. and i think you took the time with it you, you know you baked it you put it in the slow cooker and uh and those yeah. flavors those those juices developed and you know, it's it's sort of the difference between um, a reader, and I'm speaking as a reader as well as a writer here. There are times when you hate the character because you know the writer needs you to. Like, it's the difference between building a, a bad guy because he needs to be a bad guy and really having him go on a journey. Um, and they both work, but for that, for th- that, this book, these series of books, that's a lot more fun ride, I think. Um, especially if you have multiple books to do it in. You can't do that in a single book. You know, so if you're if your formula is good guys meet bad guy, by the end the bad guy's dead and they move on to the next thing in the next book, it's almost impossible to do, I would argue. Yeah. But if you can take a few books and really grow those things, it's worth it's worth the work because it's and, and, and we we have to ask, you know, you're asking your readers to be patient. You know, it's like mm. you think about like the Lord of the Rings trilogy. Uh, the Peter Jackson Lord of the Rings trilogy is like, you know, why is it that we spend, you know, half of the first movie just with Frodo and, and the rest of the hobbits? You're seeing their village life, their jackassery, their simple life. Like, you know, you're asking the reader to be patient so that you start to appreciate, you know, their relationships. And I'd say that the problem is with the modern reader and the modern television viewer is, a lot of times they just want you to get, well, get me to the action, get me to action. Yeah. And then, you know, in a, in a, in an effort to try to satisfy that and not have people put the book away because they're bored or turn off the show, it forces us as storytellers to sometimes not give you the material that you need to actually care about them. Because when you do rush it and you get to the end, like you said, Mike, it's like you get to the end, you're like, well, that was cool, but like, I actually never really cared about any of these yeah. people. Good book. Sure. Yeah. So we, we do ask our readers to be a little patient, you know? Yeah. And, you know, just to follow that up, Chris and I have been, I don't, maybe lamenting is the word. The thrillers we're reading and covering now, and we, we mostly stick to the Mitch Rapp and Scott Harveth series, they're getting shorter. And the newest releases have been the shortest in the entire 20 plus book series. And we can understand, and I talked to Ryan Steck about this too, who's, you know, the industry expert. Books are getting shorter. Publishers want, you know, or believe there's a shorter attention span and younger generations, they want to rope in. But we've almost been sad in that there's complexity and depth and that slow cooking lost Mm-hmm. And it's a genre trend that on this podcast we've spotted in recent releases, but we haven't been too happy about. <laughs> While the books are quicker, you can get through them faster. You could put them down and post about them and say, oh, great book. This was cool. This was fun. They don't have the depth of your consent to kill, you know, the height of Vince Flynn, you know, Lions of Lucerne, early Brad Thor, who was writing a 700 page novel. And I, we don't want that either, but we just don't want to lose the complexity. And you guys have done that and packed it into your books are manageable. Usually, what in the three hundreds? I know you guys go by words. A reader goes well, by like pages, but three ninety to four fifteen, something like that. Yeah. That's very rare. The last Scott Harvath books, the Brad Thor books, the last Mitch Rapp books, they've been a lot shorter, significantly shorter than that. And 
I think us readers, we don't want to just rip through books. We want to really enjoy them and go on the journey that you're taking us. And what you said before, Jeff, I think the arc of the villain is uh, now a new segment on this podcast. We're going to start looking for because you guys, <laughs> Kasim gave us a perfect arc for a villain and it's not even done yet. So we're going to start look for villain arcs now because we're always looking for the protagonist arc and the main character's arc. But a villain arc is what really can maybe set a book above to that next level. Yeah, well, for whoever's listening to the podcast, um, just know we didn't get the memo about um, shortening the books and making them <laughs> making them quick and less depth. So, what whatever you've enjoyed on ours, there it's going to continue because uh, so far the publishers haven't said you need to make this shorter. They they enjoy, they seem to enjoy. It. We are blessed to be with incredible editors, incredible publishers at Blackstone, at Tyndale House working with Tom Colgan at Penguin. We got another project with him in the near future. So we've been really lucky to have people that are invested in quality storytelling, not just getting a book out on a shelf so that they can, so that they can cash the check. So that's part of that's us, but a lot of it is just we're with the right people. That's wonderful. Well, thank you guys for spending the time to talk dark fall in the shepherd series, sons of valor Two, two of the best books I've read this year and in months. So thanks for putting them out there and uh, everybody pick up your copy of dark fall. And if you listen this long, you have probably read both because you got some spoilers by now. And like I said, I'll be sure to go back and edit in spoiler warning. So the folks are prepared at what they're going to get with this, uh, this hour of content we put together. So thanks for spending the time with me. Really appreciate you guys keep doing what you do. Uh, We always enjoy it. Thanks for having us. Great interview. And of course, if you like what you're hearing, for less than the price of a novel a month, you can help support No Limits and what we do here at the podcast. Thanks to our patrons, we're able to cover basic podcast expenses, and every penny after that is put towards Operation Paperback, a nonprofit that ships gently used books to troops and veterans We and our patrons have already donated over 1,200 books in more than 50 different care packages. Of course, patrons also receive other perks, such as podcast stickers, custom bookmarks, monthly autographed book giveaways, and a 30% off code for the thrillerpod.com store to grab some of our gear. And not to mention access to the Thriller Podcast patron group chat, where we're always talking thrillers about what's coming up next on the pod or what we're currently reading. So go ahead, if you'd like to support what we do here at No Limits, and visit thrillerpod.com and click the Patreon page and the orange Support Us on Patreon button. Again, we want to thank our patrons, including our special operator, Sherry F., along with our special agents, Daryl, Kevin, George, Matt, Dawn, Dennis, Peggy, Catherine, Ray, Bridget, Jeff, Mark, and Rod. Please subscribe, rate, and review using the Apple Podcast app or wherever you find your podcasts. You can find us online at thrillerpod.com or using the Twitter or Instagram handle, Thriller Podcast. And as always, keep the faith.